0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Allen. This week, I speak with Alex Pinto, Chief Data Scientist at Needle. We'll be talking about threat hunting and the prospect of automating portions of the threat hunting process. Enjoy the show. Hi, Alex. Thank you for joining me today on the O'Reilly Security Podcast.
1: Thanks, Courtney. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm very excited to be talking today with you about the topic of threat hunting, which is something that we've been hearing a lot about lately.
1: Yeah, you know, security needs to have its buzzwords renewed every few every few uh, years, right?
0: Absolutely. Well, let's start with a brief introduction. Can you tell us about yourself?
1: Sure. So uh, my name is Alex Pinto. And uh, I guess I've been, you can say, I've been working with security for almost 18 years now, right? And it was literally my first job uh, out of college. I mean, for some reason, I guess, oh, this seems hard. I probably will have fun uh, doing that. And boy, was I right. There, there's endless fun for sure. And um, so most of my time, uh, so the, maybe the 14 first years was as a, as a technical leader, director of a, a security consultancy in Brazil, where I'm originally from. And uh, it actually was a company I, I, I co-founded at the time. It, it became at the time, one of the largest consultancies in Brazil. Uh, but uh, after we, I started um, um, traveling internationally with the company, we had like offices in the UK and offices in the US. I decided to, to leave and, um, and uh, do something different, right? And I got very interested in, in data science, Automation, uh, machine learning, even, uh, and uh, how to apply those things uh, with security. So, four and a half years ago, uh, I started doing the research, uh, which, in a way, this this my talk is is about the, the the final incarnation, right? The the situation where the research is right now, right? and uh and uh, this research also became uh, a company um it's uh, it's a company called needle and i'm the chief data scientist at, at this company and i've been i mean most of the concepts uh that i i've been developing they became materialized in, in the products that uh, that needle uh, provides our customers
0: interesting and As we said, we're talking today about threat hunting, a bit of a buzzword. Um, It's fairly easy to pick up the gist of what this activity might involve, but threat hunting in this context actually has a pretty specific definition, though we might disagree or people might disagree on uh, exactly what that definition is. Could you briefly define threat hunting for our listeners?
1: Uh, That's really the million-dollar question there, right? Because. Every single... I mean, people will twist the words to make sure they fit whatever they're they're, they're trying to sell in a way, right? And mm-hmm. um, I do think that in the core of it, right, it's in a way an evolution from the more traditional security monitoring or log analysis that people have been doing all this time, right? And it's it's not uncommon people who have had a lot of experience in security operations center environments or or managed security services providers say, well, this is what I've been doing all this time. So maybe I was doing threat hunting all along, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea is really that you have all this data available, all this log data that you have been collecting, maybe PCAP captures, I mean, really whatever you can get your hands on, and uh, you want to have another look, right? You're not entirely confident that whatever alerting you already have in place is fit for purpose for every single possible problem you might have, every single uh, single possible incident you might have. And you decide to look for more things, right? And hopefully being able to base that out of some procedures and and uh, and grow your detection capability based on what you learn out of this, right? There are some definitions, which I'm not entirely in agreement with, that say that, oh, it's only threat hunting when it's a human activity, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, the, the definition of threat hunting is when humans are looking for things that the automation missed, right? And I personally think that's very self-serving in a way, right? You, you're always chasing your tail in if you what you're doing is, is threat hunting or not, right? And uh, I think it's a little bit beside the point, right? We should always be striving to automate the work that we're doing as much as we can, right? And it, kind of makes it, when you say something like that, kind of makes it sound like, oh, this is a completely insurmountable problem, as in you will never see the end of it. And you know what? Maybe to a certain degree, we can get to a level of comfort with the automation that we have, right? And we can really start to do more interesting things with the the Threat Hunters time. I, I mean, I'll, I'll be get into more details about what I mean on those things, but uh, I guess at the end of the day, is it's trying to find stuff that was missed somehow by so, all the rest of the security controls. Sorry yeah, so
0: an extra layer of security in a sense.
1: You know, we like our defense in depth, don't you?
0: <laughs> of course, we all do. Um, so it kind of sounds like this is a really proactive activity that people are trying to build into their security. Um, and it also sounds like it builds off the more passive focus of threat intel. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, right? And uh, and in a way, threat intelligence is trying to give you information about things you should be worried about. Okay, let's let's not talk about oh, collection of threat intelligence. Let's not talk about is this threat intelligence is good or bad. These are, I mean, we can spend the whole podcast talking about uh, all the ways that this is, is is a hard problem to solve. But but assuming that you have Good information, right, about either a piece of malware, a malware family, or a specific actor that, that's tracking you uh, that is actually trying to, to get you for some reason. Threat intelligence, and not only the IOCs, also the, the, the more higher level information about what, what's going on there, kind of gives you a blueprint about what you should be looking for. Right, so these are maybe the domains you should be looking for. These are the IP addresses. Oh, oh, this specific actor, this specific piece of malware always executes this command uh, using PowerShell or some other tool like Net, Net User on on Windows. Right, and uh, if you look for those things, uh, you might find activity of those specific actors or malware that might have uh, have missed somewhere. So in a way. You could say that uh, threat hunting is the practice of making this threat intelligence operational, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, again, there's a lot of people who will not agree with that because oh, but threat hunting is something that's much more evolved than this. If you are not if you are just comparing the Iocs that you got, uh, then that's not threat hunting. you're just operationalizing threat intelligence which again, we go we go chasing our tails again, right? But um, I will agree that there's a lot more. Higher level activity that we can do uh, with under the the umbrella of, of threat hunting, right? But usually that comes from a threat based information right so we know that when there is a there is someone is using a domain to they register a domain to attack a a specific or to to use it as a as an exploit kit attack either the time of creation of the domain is going to be very short i mean someone just registered this and uh, they're just going to use it you just see it today right or uh, maybe it was registered a long time ago and uh, the attacker let it sit for a while to make sure that it wouldn't trip any newly registered domains or things like that. But then the time of use is very short because suddenly nobody heard of this domain and then there's a lot of people uh, going there, right? This is, a, this is a kind of threat intelligence, right? This is a kind of, a, of a operational knowledge of the things you should be looking for, right? So maybe I, I'm I'm picking a fight not only with the threat hunting definition folks, but I'm also picking a fight with the threat intelligence definition folks here. But uh, I like to think those things that, i like to think of threat hunting as applied information, right? Applying applying the intelligence and even the higher level intelligence uh into the 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 operational realm.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like you're saying there's a great relationship here where if you have what we'll define as good threat intelligence. What yeah, it'll don't, do get, is it'll, don't get
1: do me started on that. That's a whole
0: <laughs> other podcast. Understood. So, what it does though is it helps us create targeted um, threat hunting. It helps us use that intelligence to support our activities and to focus them appropriately on perhaps our most likely attackers. Correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. I would. I would. I would definitely agree with that. Right, and uh, it, it the 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 threat hunting umbrella also gives us the ability to, again, do more complex analysis. Right, right. so you have all these different uh, data points, all these different pieces of information from a specific uh, attack or a specific malware. Right, and instead of relying on just one simple thing, right, then you can combine different uh, knowledge points there.
0: Right. Anything at you would add to help delineate the differences between threat intel or to and uh, threat hunting to better define that relationship?
1: I guess something that would be um, something that might be interesting and even to to appease a little bit the, the threat hunting gods is that it's much more, especially when you're thinking about higher level threat intelligence, right? And when I say higher level, I'm specifically thinking about the. The famous Pyramid of Pain, right, which is a, a, a kind of a threat intelligence value uh, model or proposal from uh, from David Bianco, who, who works at Target, uh, about the higher you go in the, the food scale in the sense of, oh, you, you really understood how this specific piece of malware or this specific actor works, right? You can have a much more precise detection of them, and it's much harder for this adversary to change the way they work right so things like uh ttps right the more specifically the techniques and the procedures right which is the the last t and the p of uh, what a piece of malware or what an adversary is doing is usually much more much more suited for a threat hunting activity right than what people will will more traditionally associate with threat intelligence based activity right if you're getting a feed, for instance, when you're talking about threat intelligence, you're not going to get any of these things. But if you are doing the quote unquote real threat intelligence work, which comes into there's also this kind of tactical layer and strategic layer of what the actors are doing. Right. You can start to uh, to branch off into these more complex kind of kind of detections. Right.
0: Definitely. So in threat hunting, we're looking for these um, specific targets. and. The, what are some of the key characteristics or constraints that would define the targets that we're looking for in these scenarios?
1: Well, I think the biggest difference, right? And, and like I said before, uh, mainly when people are using the term threat hunting or they're, they're saying about standing up a threat hunting capability, they're, very con- they're concerned with this idea of we're missing something, right? There's potentially something happening in our network, right? And there's a lot of people who are advocates of the, oh, we are already breached right? We just make sure to, must make sure to find this as quickly as possible. Um, So I think the biggest uh, difference, right, the biggest thing that the threat hunters are looking or should be looking is instead of relying on just one signal or, oh, this, my IDS generated an alert or not, right? Or I have this Specific thing that I'm looking for, but um, if you know, there, I'm 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 hunting for a specific kind of threat, right? Uh, and you know, oh, these are all the signals I could potentially be looking at. These are the all the potential analysis, all the potential queries I can do in my environment to look for things associated with these things, right? Then potentially look at all of those, time permitting, uh, to then oh, if I have enough of these then I can actually make a call that, oh, this is relevant, or this is likely to be Adversarial activity uh, around the specific threat that I'm looking for, and uh, maybe I should escalate this to to the to the instant response team or or something like that. the The biggest difference that I see is is really the the I'm not going to say capability. it's it's hard to develop this capability as well, but the the idea of uh, of trying to do this multivariate. multiple different ideas, multiple different signals that you're analyzing at the same time.
0: So, a multi dimensional approach is preferred and going to be more helpful than looking at just a single channel.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And uh, this is where the whole, oh, but security tools, they have a lot of false positives uh, discussion comes in, right? If you're not relying on only one signal while you're making your decisions, right? I mean, one of those one of the things will mess up. and if you if you create a very permissive, you have some very permissive alerting, right? Anything will alert, right? Or you're specifically looking for, I know this is not malicious, but you know, I want to know when someone goes someone is connected to the Bitcoin network, for instance, right? So I am a company i I have my business, and if someone is connecting to the Bitcoin network inside my environment, with my hardware, I would like to know that. right? That's not necessarily malicious, but you know it might be a data point that's interesting if you're investigating if you're looking for uh, potential uh, uh, machines that might be compromised or infected.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like fine tuning, uh, which is something that we hear on a lot of uh, automation style tools and processes. It's, it's super important to be able to improve with iterations and have less noise and find the right combination of factors to really bring the right activities to your attention.
1: Yes. And that's the, that is the, the crux of the, of the issue for 100% sure. And it gets even more interesting uh, when you start to realize that completely different companies still have completely different needs. They'll have different risk appetites. Uh, some companies will be—it will be absolutely, incredibly forbidden for anyone to connect to the Tor network. And in some companies, it's actually people do that every day. Nobody cares. So it becomes really interesting when you're looking at this in a in a larger scale.
0: It's also difficult when there's no one size fits all approach. Um, how to help guide people to what works best for their organization when we have so many complex factors playing into that. Mm-hmm. But once again, that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> so oh,
1: um, sad. I, I I I thought I was gonna. It was difficult enough, and I would have fun. Here we are.
0: Here we are. It it always devolves into these big conversations and. um so excited to be having it though so if we jump back to you talking about our main topic today of threat hunting there's generally a pretty specific technique identified for threat hunting Could you walk us through what that might look like
1: yeah and that's the that's the interesting thing right and um, especially because it's such a broad term it's not so much like oh yeah there's a like we were just saying right there's no one-size fits all right? And um, and uh, oh, what should we you be hunting for, right? What should be the the specific signals that you you are looking for? That and this is one of the one of the 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 kind of the memes. One of the the things that get said a lot is one of the reasons why threat hunting is so intrinsically human right now is because there's not the – people, they seem to think there's not a lot of standard operating procedures. There's not a lot of, uh, of uh, things you should be looking for. And a lot of people, they will play the card, oh, I, I as a human will know when something is bad. And I think that's just silly, right? I mean, we, we know that something is bad because we – we have seen enough good and if we had the time to just sit down and write down a simple procedure this is what good looks like you should be looking for the other things right it suddenly gets feasible right uh, i mean you don't have to 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 agree to believe in me necessarily right so there's a there's a lot of good resources and i specifically want to call out the the mitre attack framework they're pretty much documenting uh, capabilities and procedures that um, specific adversaries be there actors or be their malware use in order to propagate lateral movement? How do they connect to C2s and to avoid proxies and all those different things? This is what they do. And it's pretty much a blueprint for the things you should be looking for right if you're looking for enough of those things right and uh, in, and uh, a significant number of them seem to be coalescing on a specific machine or on a specific group of machines those are great candidates for you to pull the, pull pull the machines aside and send them to to instant response right also, want to give a shout out to ThreatHunting.net, which also has some of these processes that people that people are, are trying. But again, this is this is easy to document. To document the things you should be looking for is 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 relatively easy, right? But then the problem becomes really this analyst experience with okay, how many of these things do I need to find in order for me to make a decision that Something is malicious. I'm going to convict this machine. I'm going to bother my IR, uh, my tier three instant response analyst. And he doesn't like being bothered uh, if there no, there isn't an incident going on, right? So how much confidence do I need? How much different signals do I need in order to, to do that? And uh, and back to my previous point, right? That might be completely different from environment to environment, right? So again, machines going to tour. On a machine, on an environment that that is not allowed, you know, it could be a sign of one of those dozens of malware now, uh, of ransomware now that have their their command and control channels going through Tor, right? And if this is something you not care about in your environment, I mean, as in as in uh, access to Tor networks is not strictly forbidden, right? Looking for that as a signal that a machine might be infected, you just threw that out of the window. It's not one of the one of the, the tools that you have. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying you should block the tornado or anything like that. It's just that if you aren't in such an environment, then you have to rely more on several other signals, right? And the actual... Uh, uh balance of uh, which signals should you consider and uh, how much weight so to speak or how much confidence you put in each one of them changes as well. Right. So it's it's not it's not easy for you to just go here's the here is the the this final decision making process of what it should look like uh to be able to have a, a have a one size fits all there.
0: Yeah. It also seems like you know, moving beyond just a human activity, that that would also help overcome things like human bias something we see a lot in decision making um, it would also help with things like loss of historical knowledge of your particular environment with staffing changes or uh, changes in people's roles things that we have less control of in our own environment
1: oh absolutely that's that's a huge huge issue right yeah. it's one of those i mean you've seen it's the it's the the guy who has been there forever and he're like oh yeah i know what this is this is that machine Every time, every 30 days, it does an update somewhere, you know, and it's just this, gen- just kind of generational knowledge. That usually gets lost.
0: So even having a process for documenting that in some sort of threat hunting framework makes a lot of sense.
1: Absolutely. And, I'm, and again, I'm not saying that it's an easy thing to do, right? And uh, it shouldn't come as to any surprise to anyone that documenting processes are a good idea. Of course, I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. it's still surprising for some people, but uh, the concept that this is any different... Right, the concept that oh, this is magical. These are magical analysts that they know better. You know, they they walk around with unicorn hats, and they know <laughs> everything. Uh, no, it's a process like any other. Right?
0: Yeah. Well, breaking it down and I'm kind of removing the idea that this is some sort of magical process that makes it so much more accessible. So glad we're having the conversation. So we're talking about all these different complexities. We're talking about mm-hmm. making this work specifically for your organization. And it sounds like this is threat hunting when I say this is probably something being practiced by organizations with a relatively mature security program. Does that ring true?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's very easy to start, right? Um, and uh, I, the maturity part is not so much on the oh you need to have this amount of logs or you need to have this amount of coverage in your existing security controls right i mean you can literally just start it with uh with open source uh information about adversaries and the log data that you have you can ideally start uh, looking for stuff the problem is that if you're not used to doing uh doing so and not having clear metrics or processes or what does good look like you're probably going to spend days chasing rabbits, you know, and oh, this is so shiny. Let me look at that. And then you look around, it's like a week has passed, you know, you have a beard and uh you haven't you haven't gone home to your family and you know you just you just lost track of time because there were no there was not a process. There were no repeatable metrics, right? And even worse, you're not showing anyone any results, right? So people will just, oh yeah, let me, let me, you're gonna do this part-time now, and then you're not doing it seems like you're not doing anything. You're actually working a lot but you're not getting any results out of it, then it, it just gets sidetracked. So uh, it's it's hard to get the repeatable results, right? And it's hard to get good metrics as well, uh, unless you have a dedicated team, right? But on the other hand, it's not a lot of companies, right? And I'm being very, very generous here with not a lot, uh, who can afford, oh, I'm going to have my top tier analysts. They're just going to be there dedicated to looking for stuff, right? And, uh, when there's usually so much more work to be done on the core competencies of security, like vulnerability management, patch management, application security, things with, without, with we all die, right? I mean, this is like the, 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 the thing that companies should have at least some control. Mm-hmm. On, on what they're doing before they they can actually uh, apply resources to that Be- again because the traditional solutions for this they are usually very people centric and people turns out are very rare and very expensive.
0: Sure, and we're also talking about return on investment. When you're not already addressing things like patch management or vulnerability management, um, then clearly your money is better spent on addressing those core
1: competencies. Absolutely, and and I agree with that hundred percent as well.
0: So like most security practices, this sounds like a process, not a (laughs) one-time task. And we've touched upon that a number of times. Um, How can threat hunting best be fit into an existing security program and how can we best create a process around it?
1: Well, the environments where I've seen the most success in spinning this up uh, was to get the threat hunting area to be an offshoot of the instant response team, right? And the idea is that I mean, these people, they were already uh, very comfortable with handling instance in the organization. They already understood enough. Of the organizational environment, and uh, they would then start to on their quote-unquote free time. I mean, people's hair are not on fire 24/7, right? Some, some, so yeah, good news, guys. Some some organizations actually get to the point where their hair is not on fire 24/7. I know you can do it, right? We can. It's 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 within our reach to be able to 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 get to that point. But anyway, once that status is reached, right, then. Uh, Those incident response people, uh, they would be able to spend some of their time, again, looking for things and formulating hypotheses of, hmm, I know that I have these controls, so maybe I have a blind spot here, so maybe I should start looking for things on this blind spot. But then they were always documenting everything that they were doing. They were trying to, if there was a query on a SIM or on a log management platform or anything like that, they would document that and to make sure that they were not the only ones who would be able to run that query. And they would not just do it when, you know, they felt like it. And this became uh, a part of a growing body of knowledge of, oh, these are things we probably should be looking for from time to time uh, when we have um, some spare cycles, right? And when those things start to pay off, and again, uh, I think I I personally believe the organization there was the key. Uh, I mean, not the organization itself, but the, the fact that they were organized in doing this, they were documenting everything. They were able to show the value. They were able to show, you know what? We are actually finding things, right? We found there was a gap. Maybe this, our specific security tool, whatever was badly configured. We improved the configuration there. Now we're starting to get uh, to even maybe even uh, protect against some flaw that we weren't protecting before, right? I mean, it's still very hard to, to manage productivity and success metrics of a team like that, right? Again, some companies, they don't care in the sense that... They have either uh, an obligation to their stakeholders or to regulation bodies that they cannot afford to have uh, uh, some sort of huge breach on the news. And most, most of these organizations, are they cannot afford to have a huge breach on the news again. Right. Mm. And they will just do it regardless. But metrics are good and um, and although I understand that this is an activity that you can just like you know pinning your wheels and never find anything, there's a great metric, which is again, hard to measure, but it's called uh, dwell time. It's definitely one of my favorites, which is what was the average time and how long does it usually take for the, the instant response team? to find something as opposed to when the machine was originally infected or compromised. How long did it take for the alert to be generated or for this to be found in hunting or something like that so that, oh, okay, that's an issue, we need to remediate, we need to nuke the machine, or we need to separate this machine out to the lab, figure out what what it what this thing is, right? So this dwell time, which is, I mean, every single... Uh, <laughs> Every single uh, vendor pitch will have something like, oh, companies take more than 100 days to find specific malware in their environments, right? This is the kind of thing you should be measuring for your own environment, right, on your IR process, right? And if you start to engage in threat hunting and you see this number decrease, you're finding stuff sooner. That means that the threat hunting is working.
0: Interesting. I would almost think the reverse would be true. That um, as you have a more secure environment, as you're identifying these and removing them, that it would actually take longer for dwell time.
1: I think there are definitely competing hypotheses there, right? I see where you're coming from. If you if you are technically if you're technically finding all the easy stuff sooner, maybe the the hard stuff will take longer to find. But it's one of those things where you're finding more stuff with uh, sooner. And you're growing your, in a way, your capability complex. As in, as in, you're getting harder stuff as well and faster. So, a kind of, kind of the number, the denominator there of your average, kind of throws everything down. I don't, I don't have, I don't have an actual mathematical theory about that. It just, it tells me that it, it should work out.
0: No, and that makes sense, and perhaps. We're talking about a myth here too of this environment where it's entirely secure. So yeah, uh,
1: that's that's another that's another uh, happy happy thought place with unicorns and labels that I try to go to and well, when I'm feeling especially stressed. But these places don't exist. right?
0: Uh, reality, it's a it's a harsh one. <laughs>
1: it so, is.
0: So we've been talking about threat hunting, and you've been doing some exciting work um, with automation, as we've touched on. So you've been talking about automation as ma- maturity model and threat hunting can you give us an overview
1: sure sure and again this this goes back a little bit to the to the beginning of the podcast and how people are very they're very they usually very Permissive with the usage of words, right? Yeah. So people will say, and again, a lot of people will will react to threat hunting as, oh, it's only human centric. So if you're saying that you're automating it, that doesn't make sense. That's impossible, right? And uh, I got into quite a few discussions uh, with pe- people I respect very much, and that, that I mean, I, I I believe they respect me as well. Very very civil discussions about uh, those things, right? And it it turns out that with uh, almost like everything in security, it's all about defining your what the words mean if you're able to define what the word mean if you're able to define this is what i call threat hunting this is what i mean by automation and i understand that automation is not a one size fits all mm-hmm. it's it's you can look at it in a scale right and suddenly it became natural for me to try to explain the work I've been doing, the research I've been doing in this kind of uh, this maturity model scale. So in a nutshell, right, and uh, we, ha- I have been trying stuff out. I think it's the uh, at least for the beginning of my research it's the most the fairest thing I can say around machine learning insecurity. Right. And uh, because I was all these things we were talking about on this podcast so far about, oh, there are ve- there's a lot of different signals. Right. There's a lot of different things I can look at to make a decision if something is malicious or not. There are all these different techniques I can draw upon, right? But at the end of the day, it's the hard part is the decision-making process. Is even if I have all these signals, right, what really matters is for me as a human analyst to be able to, to call, to say, oh, uh, I have to make a decision. If uh, looking at all those things, looking at this graph visualization, Looking at the information that uh, where this domain was registered, what IP addresses this domain goes to, if this is something that's likely to be relevant for me, for my analysis, for my instant response team or not, right? And that doesn't scale, right? Especially the more signals you have, the more things the analyst has to look at in order to make that decision. It doesn't work, right? We're never going to be able to do anything meaningful in that space, right? We're going to be relying on hiring as many people as we can. And uh, we're. I, I would say that there's not a lot of effort that companies are doing on training new new people to do that, to, to be good analysts. They're mostly just poaching each other's people, right? Mm. And that's, again, much less sustainable than if they were actually trying to train people to do that, right? So. Uh, I was. This was really what I what I was pursuing. Right? Can we automate this part? Right? Can we help with this decision-making process? Right? And uh, for people who have some familiarity with with machine learning, right? And it's. I do. I've been doing this on purpose. And especially when I talk about these things, I do this on purpose. Is that everything looks like it would fit very well on on a supervised on supervised machine learning model design? Right? Because you have all these signals. Right, you have uh, to make a call. This, uh, you have to classify if something is going to be more likely to be good or bad. Right, and all this data is available. All this data, right, is right there on the on the log data, on the previous alerts that the company had, maybe other incidents that they have handled. Right, things that they trust. Oh, I trust this place. So this in any model that you're training, you should pro- potentially classify this thing as benign. Right. So it's, it's all there on a, specific, on a specific realm of possibility, right? And I really try to address on my talk, what would a model like that, what does a model like that look like? I, I, I talk about it as if I hadn't implemented it yet, but it exists, right? So what does it look like? And uh, what are the steps that we need in order to get to, to something like that?
0: Well, it's important uh, to be looking forward, especially as you noted, we've kind of talked about in this call, um, we need skilled people, and that's a limited resource. So exciting to think about a future um, where that limitation causes less of an effect on security of an organization. So it seems like save time and efficiency would be huge wins for using automation and threat hunting. Are there other benefits?
1: I think the biggest benefit in addition to those is consistency, right? You just mentioned the, the, the kind of the um, lost knowledge in companies around the, the people leaving or maybe the, the analyst that wasn't the most experienced one wasn't the one handling the specific instant or the specific hunting activity, right? So they didn't recognize something as malicious. So if you if you have a system that's able to, oh, it holds all this knowledge. It knows, quote unquote, right? And and, and uh, it's it's very it's a very broad term there. Um, all those things that happen, right? And it can look at all the data at the same time. It will generally always make the same call. Right. So you, you gain consistency. No matter, it's not much anymore a matter of, oh, you know what? This happened during the, the evening. We only had half our analyst uh, team because, I mean, during the, the evenings, we, we most of the people were home. Right. And um, you know what? The guy was super tired that day uh, or, 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 or the girl, and um, they missed it. It wasn't their fault right? Absolutely. But you know what? It happens, right? People are tired. People are, you know, they they have to eat, they have to sleep. So uh, consistency becomes very, very important in, in an activity like that.
0: That makes a tremendous amount of sense. So we just talked about the benefits, but turning that around and talking about some of the common barriers, what would be some common barriers or some applicable barriers to applying automation to threat hunting?
1: so this is the, exactly the way that i am i'm structuring my talk in the sense that what people should recognize as the difficulties in, in in pursuing this automation right and how we can try to circumvent those difficulties right so the joke i mean i begin by the first barrier to automation is automation right so the first thing you have to do in order to automate something is to automate something and um, and it's very easy to think of interesting use cases and again and uh, keying on my definition of the relationship on threat, uh, between threat hunting and threat intelligence, of you being able to have a signature, right? And uh, and this doesn't have to be. And when I say a signature, I'm not mean. I don't mean that. Oh, you bought a product, and this product tells you that. No, you just. You know what? I really don't like the .top domain. You know, I have never seen a .top domain that I like. I've never seen anything valid, anything that was actually not bad. So you know what? I'm going to write a role. I'm going to search for any TOP domains, and I'm going to open an incident on that. And that's very straightforward to understand, right? And again, I'm even, I'm even going one step removed from, oh, I have this list of domains or this list of IP addresses, right? This is a very simple call uh, that you can make, right? But the moment that this falls apart, right, is when we reach what I call the context barrier, which is understanding that, you know what, just blocking on the on the top-level domains is probably not a good idea all the time, right? So specifically, I mean, you'll see, you'll see a lot of .top domains on, on known uh, malicious activity, but you're going to see a lot of .com domains as well, Right. Usually, some either someone registers .com or they they hijack the domain or they hijack the server and they, they use I don't know a word a WordPress or a Drupal exploit to inject something inside the, uh, an existing website. And uh, if you if you try to block .com in your company, you're going to have a very very short career at that organization, right? You're probably out the next day. So to be able to understand that, uh, to be able to oh okay, .com is not a good thing to potentially block or alert on, but .tops is is where the context from both the organization, right, and uh, the idea that, oh, there's higher level things here at play, right? I can understand that there is badness that I can analyze, but there's goodness I can analyze as well. I can look at my own log data, to see behaviors of access, right? So a lot of the plays around user behavioral analytics, right? They're trying to breach this context barrier to try to create higher level signals where you can actually learn something from what's happening inside the environment to say, oh, maybe this behavior is a little bit more interesting than that other one. So this one should be be brought to light, right? But on these two barriers, uh, after breaching those two barriers, like this first and the second step, again, we're only creating signals, right? And uh, to be able to alert, to simply make a decision based on each one of those calls back to what we were talking before on the presentation where, oh, I have all those signals. Now, how do I decide which one of those are relevant, which one of those are are good or not, right? And this is what I call the experience barrier, right? Which, again, the idea of this experienced analyst uh, sitting there and like, oh, you know what? When the stars align like this, it actually means that it's this specific adversary or this is the malware that infected that uh, specific machine. And that part here, this part here of the experience is the one that the, the supervised machine learning models, they work extremely well, right? Again, you have all the signals, they become the features there. You have, the, the, again, the aggregated knowledge of what's potentially good or bad in an environment as a way to, to extract labels from it. And I'll, I'll definitely go into more detail on, on, on what it looks like during the talk, right? But then you can even automate this experience, kind of thing uh kind of barrier when you are when you are delving into the supervised machine learning area and the the last barrier right Every, every every good thing must come to an end is where we we gladly we humans still have a job uh which is the the creativity barrier and that's the concept of you know what there was a brand new attack i have no way of detecting this i maybe i don't have the logs Or maybe this was something that I never thought about, so I haven't really written a query. I haven't generated the signal from this. So I need to go back to the drawing board, figure out a way to collect information from this specific thing, figure out a way to generate signals, and then these signals can be fed back into this loop. Maybe they can be automated by a a second level process there that I was talking about, the one after breaching the context barrier. And uh, then it could be considered on the the third level, which uh, after we breached the experience. But it kind of creates this feedback loop, which, you know what, when you think about it, this is not different of the work you would do with the actual analysts on a security creation center. Instead, but instead of creating, in addition to, instead of teaching a machine learning model, you're actually writing playbooks uh, for the analysts. So it's actually, it's natural when you think about it as a part of a security process, right? I'm just trying to make the humans more efficient and making sure that they are only necessary when it's, oh, this is really unknowable, and uh, the machine's not going to figure this, this out by itself.
0: Well, it certainly makes the most of uh, the resource of time, uh, which in light of some of the skills gap that you touched upon is especially important for security teams right now and for organizations that are trying the hardest to be secure. Absolutely. So we've touched on it a bit a few times. You have referenced your talk and to be explicit about it. We're very excited to have you speaking on this topic at O'Reilly Security. Your talk is Towards a Threat Hunting Automation Maturity Model, and you'll be speaking on Tuesday, October thirty first.
1: I'll have my I'll have my my costume, my Halloween costume. We
0: can't wait to see what that is.
1: I need to uh, Google search for Capybara costumes on Oh, Amazon.
0: well, now I'm just <laughs> incredibly excited. So uh, speaking of, are there any other sessions or tracks at the event that you're especially excited for?
1: In an abundance of honesty, I haven't really looked through the, the actual sessions yet, right? I, I, I'm sure today's the 27th of June. You have just yes. released it. Mm. But one of the things that really excite me about O'Reilly is how there's always a lot of uh, data analytics and data science-driven talks. I'm pretty sure there's going to be a bunch of those uh, I'm going to be attending. They're definitely my my favorite. And, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to, I, I think I probably know the vast majority of people in the security area who are trying to talk about those things. And, but I'm always excited to meet new ideas and meet new people and new speakers that I had never heard about who are also touching uh, on those on those uh, those different subjects.
0: Great. Well, you're very right. We do have a security analysis track, and your talk will be part of that on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today on the Aurelia Security Podcast.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. You can reach Alex on Twitter at AlexCPSec. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the Aurelia Security Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.